The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. I have heard the oldest stories that the wisest man never told. And I cast aside my worries And just went digging for gold And I will scale the highest mountains Looking for the bluest blue But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have Welcome to this Between the Seasons episode of the Anchored City Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. I don't just host podcasts, I also listen to them. During the middle of the pandemic, I got hooked on a podcast called The Last Archive. The website where the show is housed by the audio production company Pushkin Industries states, The Last Archives is a show about the history of truth and the historical context for our current fake news post-truth moment. It's a show about how we know what we know, and why it seems these days as if we don't know anything at all anymore. The show is driven by host Jill Lepore's work as a historian, uncovering the secrets of the past the way a detective might. It's a great podcast. You should look it up. The Last Archive uses an image of an archive to drive its exploration of the history of the truth. Archives.gov describes an archive as a place where people go to gather firsthand facts, data, and evidence from letters, reports, notes, memos, photographs, and other primary sources. Anchorage has its own archive, but it's not the metaphorical archive of the Last Archive podcast. It's a real archive. To find it, you need to go to the UAA APU Consortium Library. Find the central staircase next to the Foucault Pendulum and walk to the third floor. I made this journey recently. Once at the archive, I met with my friend Becky Butler, who took me on a tour and sat me down to talk all things archive. That I have yet to cross And I have dreamed of faraway places Where imagination just gets lost And I would search the wide world over you back into the vault if you'd like. So just pardon the mess. This is our lab. We have a fume hood in here for anything that might be off-gassing. So certain film types will, over time, they'll just release, they release all sorts of noxious gases that can be damaging or just unhealthy, so we stick them in there. Those are the problem children. This is the vault. Normally researchers are not allowed back here. I'm going to move away from the dehumidifiers. (laughs) 
And researchers meaning if folks come in to, and we're looking for something. Yes. Anybody who comes to the archives to use materials, we are open to the public. So anybody like that is considered a researcher. It's just the term we use instead of client or patron. Gotcha. <laughs> so back here, it's only archival workers, though. Anything that's been donated to the archives that is a physical item will eventually end up described and put into an archival safe box and stashed here. We have the locations noted in multiple places, so it's not quite like in a library where you can go down the shelves and it's organized, like all the A's are here, all the B's are here. This is more just we have labels, we know which thing is at which label. So that's another way that reason we don't let researchers come back here. It's very confusing. <laughs> so we have things that are neatly in boxes. We have lots and lots of oversized items. So giant scrapbooks, old rolls of maps, protest posters. Those are all items we have here. We also have a lot of the theses, historical theses that have been produced here at the university, both UAA and APU. Okay. So you mentioned donations. Mm -hmm. How do you all, how do you accumulate all this? Is it mostly donations? Yes. So largely we do, like, most modern archives will not purchase things. It is stuff that is donated just because you can get into some ethically murky <laughs> waters if you start purchasing things. Um, if you're a political figure, you probably know about archives. You probably have an assistant who has been preparing your papers, but we accept collections from anyone. Um, our goal is to tell this history of Alaska, kind of focusing on the South Central area. And the story of Alaska is not just its politicians. So anybody can leave their records here or their papers. So for example, we have some protest signs. I believe these are from the Women's March back when that we I think the first one we had I don't remember the exact year but that's just sort of something that my boss was able to be present in that moment and recognize the historical value that someday people are going to want to know what the everyday Anchorage person was saying at this mm -hmm. political moment and these signs document that so that's how these ended up here <laughs> we also have University records. So records generated by university departments, administration, all that sort of thing would end up here. We try not to have anything, um, you know, specifically about students or identifiable information like that, but we do want to document the history of the university. So that stuff is all ends up here too. That And that just sort of happens by a record schedule, or, or it should. <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea at least. That's Working in an archives is like herding cats. <laughs> and there are always 50 projects ongoing long-term. In light of that comment, I asked Becky to share with us a bit about the projects she's working on. We have the records of a historian who is focusing on, I think his first big project was Blacks in Alaska. His name was George Harper and we have a lot of his slides and photographs and research files and things like that. And a lot of his photographs and slides had never been 
archivally processed, meaning like put in sleeves that will protect them and enable researchers to use them a little bit better. So they've been helping me go through and do that, which has been a lot of work. He was a prolific photographer. He was the sort of sweet man that would go on vacation and take five pictures of the same rock, but he also has a lot of valuable information in amongst all that. So it's been a big project. Something else I've been working on let me see if I still have any of the boxes left in my office. I have some of the remnants. So the Alaska Professional Communicators, formerly the Alaska Press Women, uh, they have deposited their records here, meaning they haven't totally deeded over ownership and everything to us, but they have entrusted us to keep them safe and make them available to the public. So, but they keep bringing us more and more additions. So I recently went through and added new additions. I've also pulled out some items that I think they'll want back, like things with personally identifiable information or duplicates of things they've already previously donated. So that's been one of my bigger projects that I'm happy to have <laughs> wrapping up. Right now, right as you were walking in, I'm just reboxing scrapbooks. Um, Right now, these are just wrapped in paper, which is fine, but when we need to move everything out, I'd rather have them someplace safe. Oh, and then over here, <laughs> see, I'm, see what I'm telling you, like it's 50 projects all at once. Um, our lovely assistant, Emma, found some images that had never been, well, they're negatives that had never been noticed before in a collection. They were just still in their original packaging, and they look like nitrates. So nitrate negatives um, are one of those things that off-gas, and they can deteriorate. So I'm going through, seeing what's deteriorating, what I think might be suspect, and trying to digitize them. But. And with all those lessons learned, with the crazy long life that I lived already, and the scars I earned, I still can't see. But loving you just once was worth it, even if I, I can't have Well, my name is Becky Butler. I am a librarian and archivist currently working at the UAA and APU Archives and Special Collections. All right. So what does the UAA APU Archive, what is it? Okay. And what does it do? Yeah, there's, there's kind of two questions there, yeah. so I'll try to break it down. Um, just in case people aren't familiar with what archives are, which if, yeah, you aren't, start there. if you aren't a historical researcher or somebody who regularly uses them, it's totally reasonable to not know what they are. So an archive is a place that collects unpublished materials that document the historical experience of humanity. So that can mean a lot of different things. It means we're collecting letters, we're collecting photographs, we may be collecting film, we have organizational records, so things that an office might create. We have, oh my gosh, I've worked with so many different collections that are have postcards that have 
I recently found a collection that had a bag of balloons in it. <laughs> There's a lot of different things that people donate to the archives to capture the story of a place. So here at the UAA APU Archives and Special Collections, we are specializing in things that tell the history of Alaska, kind of focusing on the south central and southwestern areas. So we regionally focus or attempt to. <laughs> Um, so what are kind of some of the, maybe the high profile things that are in the archive or things that might, people might find interesting that are sitting back there on the shelves? Oh, there are so many different things <laughs> and people have such different interests. So like if you're a political scientist, you might like the, um, Walter Hickel records, or we have Fran Ulmer's papers here as well. So we have some high pro- profile politicians, uh, all the papers that they generated, that they then chose to donate would be here. If you like mountaineering or trails, we have collections from the National Ski Patrol or Vern Tejas, who's a big mountaineering guy whose collection I've worked on recently. (laughs) Um, You know, Lainey Fisher's records are here. So she's somebody who, if you've ever been on Anchorage trails, uh, she probably had a hand in setting up those routes and things like that. So, and then... What a lot of people really enjoy are the photographs. Um, You can find some online in the Alaska Digital Archives, but um, I'll tell you about my favorite collection later. (laughs) I'm jumping ahead in the questions. But the photographs, I think, are the most immediate way that people connect to the stories of people in the past. So I think that's why those tend to be... Hmm. You know, we have pictures of trappers, of, um, you know, dog mushers, of little kids at school, Boy Scouts in the 50s, just little vignettes of life in Alaska that you can, if you can see a little gap tooth grin of this Boy Scout from the 50s, you, you connect to it so much faster than just a history textbook telling you that there were <laughs> Boy Scouts in Anchorage in the 50s, you know? So yeah. it depends on what you call high profile, but we have a lot of stuff in our collections. <laughs> I would imagine if the average person came and walked through the archive, it might look potentially, I think it's pretty cool, but <laughs> might look potentially kind of boring. Like it's stacks of papers and rolls of maps and all kinds of stuff. And like you said, you guys are getting ready to reorganize and change some things around. So now it looks even more like a yard sale. Yep. Like, yep. <laughs> so in light of that, like what, what originally drew you to this work and how did you get started in being an archivist? So I had a professor that ruined my life in college. (laughs) I went to Washington State University. I was in the pre-vet program. I had every intention of being a veterinarian um, eventually and coming back to Alaska and working with big animals. That didn't happen. (laughs) I joined the Honors College, and one of my very first classes was in historical research. Um, It was with Jesse Sponholz, actually. Um, So his family's from Anchorage. And his passion for historical research, his dedication in passing on how we tell stories just really rubbed off on me. Like, for example, the first day of class, he had a loose collection of papers. He divided the class into three groups. He gave one group receipts and kind of financial records. He gave another group photographs and he gave another group like um, work material. So things that he had created in his professional life. And he told us to tell him about himself based on the records we had in front of us. 
So each group kind of tried to answer the key questions he put up there, and each group had a little bit different answers. Some people got it right, some people got it wrong, and the conclusion was that this is how we tell the stories of the past. If all we have left is the records that people have left behind or the papers. So that was a really eye-opening experience to me that history is not memorizing a set story and getting it right on the test. (laughs) It is delving into as much material and, uh, you know, secondary sources about that material as possible to try to see all the different sides, the different ways you can evaluate it and interpret it and then present it to the world Um, and how to do that ethically and... Uh, Yeah, that just blew my mind. And he also brought us into the archives, and they had set out some items for us to look through that we could touch. (laughs) And he said, pick something. You're going to work on this for the rest of the semester. This is your historical research project. So I picked out a pamphlet that was created by a 16th century English midwife who was accused of working for the Pope and trying to commit regicide. And it ended up being such an amazing project. I felt like I got to know this woman. Um, My professor had very intentionally picked archival items that had other secondary sources about them. So Mm -hmm. I was able to see what other people said about her. I was able to come to my own conclusions based on my experience interacting with her through her materials. And I just fell in love with that. So I didn't immediately jump into becoming an archivist after that. I... Then went on to decide I didn't want to be a vet, got a vague liberal arts degree, (laughs) and I knew I needed to keep going to school. I had a desire to to do something useful to the world. I value social justice. I value seeing people represented fairly. So it came down to law school or library school. Hmm. And law school felt like a bad fit for me (laughs) temperament-wise. So I went with libraries, and I decided to focus on archives. And so that's what I hope that in my career I'm able to promote different voices and encourage people to do ethical, well-rounded, in-depth research and not just call a Google search research. (laughs) Just funny because we're just having a conversation. I know. I don't mean to bash you, but (laughs) I'm just saying, if someone says, well, I researched it, push back on what that means. Yeah, yeah, where they were going, yeah, (laughs) for sure. So this podcast is really interested in connecting with Anchorage's soul kind of through the histories and stories and people. Mm-hmm. And it feels a little bit like an archive does the same thing. So how do you see kind of those connections? Like how does this stack of papers and other documents connect with kind of histories and stories and people? I mean, I, this one I struggled to come up with an answer besides it just does. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's the answer, but I don't know. Um, I think... Um, I think if the records weren't there to be viewed, people wouldn't have the opportunity to connect with them, right? So it would just be something that is forgotten. So I'll go back to the collection I was telling you about a little bit earlier, um, George Harper's collection. He was a historian. He was a figure skater instructor. He was a traveler. He uh, did all these different things in his life that you wouldn't know without looking at his records if you didn't know him. Hmm. But you can look through his photos and see what he did. He is so much more than a man who researched black people who have moved to Alaska in a certain time frame, which is what you would know from him if you just looked at published record. Hmm. But if you get to the, take the time to experience him through his papers, the items that he generated, you can start to see, like, oh, this is a man who 
put his thumb over the camera lens and probably <laughs> would be the sort of person who, after he came home from vacation, would want you to sit down so he could show you all his slides. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's that sort of deeper connection of who he was um, that I don't know that you would see apart from knowing him or his family or knowing him, hmm. you know, in real life. Hmm. Well, let's move it into and maybe think about those three things, stories and histories and people. So what's a story or stories maybe that you learned in the archive? So I'll tell you a story. Um, oof, I got two good ones. You can tell them both. I'll tell them both. Okay. <laughs> so they're both from my time at the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks Archives. And one of my favorite collections to show people there because it really drew them in and helped them connect. Um, there were pictures of the red light district in Fairbanks in around 1906-1907. I love this collection because that is not something you see documented very frequently. Things that are illegal or socially unacceptable or honestly featuring women in that time frame are probably not something you see a lot of written or film record about. So I love this collection because you got to see people that normally you wouldn't. Um, and it also tells you so much about the time, like what was sexy attire back then. Like, and they, that's a nighty. That is like your grandma's full-on flannel nighty. Like, and the reason those records were produced was because there was a gentleman who was wanting to purchase the whole red light district, so he was taking pictures of the investment. So mm. it's all that's also interesting. Like, oh, you were an object. You were a money-making vehicle. Um, and I would love to know more about who those people were. You know, they, their names were not important in that process. Uh, who they were, where they came from, or why they came to Alaska, or if they meant to pursue this career. But um, that, I really like that collection just because it shows a side of history that you don't often see documented. And then one of the other collections that I was able to process in Fairbanks I should define that term. Processing is when you receive materials from a donor, and often they are just stuff in a box, <laughs> and I get the pleasure of opening the box and kind of getting it ready to be viewed by researchers. So that means putting it in archival safe enclosures. Um, it may involve rearranging, although sometimes you want to preserve the original order that things were in to capture where that person's head was at. It kind of depends mm -hmm. on the collection. But you're basically just getting it ready to be used by a researcher. So I got to go through Constance Helmrich's papers. She was somebody who, like, back in the 50s, she and her husband were featured on Life magazine and stuff for coming up and living in the North, and they kind of made a career of uh, living in Alaska. It's like the, <laughs> those gold rush shows and stuff on TV now. That's kind of how she got her start. Um, but she did so much other traveling. She lived this huge other life. And then the story I found didn't even involve her. <laughs> In this collection, I found mention of a child of her father who somehow ended up in France with his mother, who was a burlesque dancer. And then World War II broke out. So then her father, who was this fancy doctor, had to figure out how to get his son over, you know, before hmm. Paris was invaded. So he did eventually do that, and I was able to find, you know, pictures of he and his son when they were entering Ellis Island. Hmm. So, like, I found the re evidence of this happening in this woman's records, and then I was able to back it up with what I found online, which was, this was a little bit of a waste of my time, but I was so drawn in by the story <laughs> of this little boy 
And then it turns out his father was not very kind to him. So there were letters in the collection I processed, descri- you know, kind of apologizing for his treatment from his stepmother. And then he ended up becoming a private investigator in New York. <laughs> and he said it was because, you know, growing up as a little boy who only spoke French in New York, he kind of had to fend for himself. So he learned he learned the ways of New York very quickly as a survival mechanism. And that helped him when he became a private investigator. And even though he had a rather traumatic youth, he ended up marrying this beautiful, sweet, kind lady by all reports. You know, three different sources were telling me she was a sweet, gentle lady. And then this gentleman died of lung cancer, I believe, in the... 80s we didn't live very long but this is a whole little side story that I was able to find out about and ask the family who had donated the papers about and I just and I had an image of this little boy I love that story I don't I don't I think it was also the detective work of putting together the pieces of his life Um, but it almost sounds like like you can make a movie out of his life yeah yeah there's lots of twists and turns Uh Uh so maybe you've already started on this but who are some of the people past or present you've been able to meet by working in an archive? Let me think of somebody I haven't mentioned yet. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, apart from people I have met through their papers, Hmm. I will say some of the funnest groups of... My mom's going to yell at me if I use the word funnest. (laughs) 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 The most fun I have had meeting people in the archives has been with researchers. So people who have chosen to come into the archives to, for whatever project. Um, for example, I met a gentleman who was coming in from Puerto Rico uh, wanting to study Ernest Gruning. And they have the, his papers up in Fairbanks. So he, he came in, and this was r- shortly after they had their earthquake so it was a kind of a big deal for him to get funding from his university mm. to be able to come up there. Um, and I actually had to write him a letter to say, like, we are a real university. <laughs> we do have these papers. He is welcome to come. And he came and he brought me coffee and he brought me chocolate. And we had a lovely week of just him coming in and putting in the hours and chit-chatting about Puerto Rico. So I think I like seeing um, all the different types of people that mm. come in and want to use our stuff. Mm. Again, this might be an overlap question, mm-hmm. but like, is there been a particular history that you've uncovered as you've opened one of those boxes? I mean, you're telling the story about the little boy from that needed to be extricated ahead of the Nazis and all that. But is there another story of like a history that sort of you discovered that maybe hadn't been discovered before? The sad thing about working in archives is that you are not the researcher. Mm. So sometimes you have to not be drawn in. But of course there is another story (laughs) where that did happen, (laughs) where I just had to keep kind of setting aside things that were related. So it was about the first hanging, um, as reported by some random storyteller on a captain, a steamboat in Alaska. So it was apparently, I first found wind of this story when I was going through the captain of the steamboat's records, and he had written down, like, just notes from a story that someone had told in, like, the lounge area. Um, So it was a passenger on his Mm. steamboat who was recounting how they hung someone for doing a certain crime. 
And then I started doing a little bit more background research, and I saw that this story had been published by another historian, but some of the details differed from what the captain had in his mm. notebook. For example, in the in the published article I found on the story, they hung a man. In the captain's story, he was 13. Mm. And it's that's a sort of detail to me that is pretty critical when we're talking about it. And I'll give a little bit more context because this is a hate crime in my opinion. It was um, a lynching and it was, um, I won't list the community name. Uh, <laughs> I want to be careful about what I say. Um, but it was a gold mining town and, a, and it was a community of largely white people. And there was an Alaska native they called him shaman, medicine man, all sorts of things in the records. And this, a, a little boy, who did something they didn't like. So they went after these two Alaska Native people. And to some, some people, one of the records states that the boy was given up as victim. Mm. So... I think the details of this case are pretty important yeah. <laughs> because it is told as a point of pride, like, oh, we had justice done in the Wild West. And in another case, it is a gross injustice. It is a hate crime. So that's a story that I'm interested in, that I've discovered, that I have not been able to put in more time to research. But but that's lots of opportunity. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think it's so important to know, like, that who's telling the story changes how the story is told and who like is just tracking down all the little bits and bobs we might just miss things for example yeah like a 13 year old is not a man maybe he was viewed as a man in that time like who knows what i may i may be putting my you know temporal bias on it sure but 13 year old is not a man <laughs> to me <laughs> no it's pretty young yeah it's pretty darn young <laughs> What do you think the archive here says about the people of Anchorage? Like, if you had to say, what is this thing? What story does it tell? I mean, I should, there's lots of stories, but mm -hmm. what are some of the things maybe that it says about the people of Anchorage? I have only been here, you know, as a full-time position for about, oh my gosh, it's almost two months now. <laughs> but I have interned here previously. I've done contract work here previously, and I am impressed with, like, the breadth of experiences that people have in Anchorage. You know, we are a diverse community in so many different ways, and so we have so many different types of stories waiting to be heard right here. Um, and we can always expand on that. Like, you know, we're always looking for more of those stories, but I think that's the biggest uh, way that we reflect Anchorage. We have, there's no one set type of person who we want to see represented here. Which goes a little against the, sometimes the, the narrative of a certain type of person that moves to the Arctic or is from the Arctic or those yeah. type of things. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you might think that the, you know, the political papers are what are going to see the highest use from researchers. But so often it's not. It's the everyday experiences of people that are getting more use because they're more, you know, they just have the research value to our particular users. So, mm. Yeah. I find that encouraging, though, that the, it says something about, like, the experience of, of kind of normal folks mm -hmm. living their lives is really important. Mm -hmm. And the littlest things can be important that you don't even know about. Like, I had a, a Finnish researcher once who wanted to know about the use of oil lamps. Hmm. 
and that's not something you're going to find written about in some fancy pants person's papers. It's what you're going to find in everyday photos or maybe letters or things like that. That that So that's where they're going to go. That's where the researcher is going to look. Hmm. That's interesting to think about. It's probably considered such an ordinary object that nobody was like, I'm going to research it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and there not was, a topic. There was a point. certain time frame she was looking at, and she was specifically looking at, like, marine mammal-based oil lamps. Like, it was very specific. But even more so, like, that's not who's going to be collecting that specific information. Yeah. It's the tangen- tangential sources that become the most important, I think, in my experience. Hmm. So if folks wanted to get in touch with the archives, they wanted to use it, they wanted to see the pictures, those type of things, how do they go about contacting you all and, and doing that? Yes, I want to emphasize that we are a public archive. So even though we are housed in the UAA APU Consortium Library, we are open to the public. Currently, we have open hours Thursday and Friday, 11 to 4. We do have a website, and those hours may change, so please look on our website, archives.consortiumlibrary.org. And, uh, yeah, stay tuned. We do also have appointments that you can request if the open hours don't work for you. But, yeah, we have big things coming, so stay tuned. <laughs> and we end a lot of our interviews with this question, so I'll ask it to you, too. Is there a self-care or mindfulness or spiritual practice that you do that helps keep you centered um, in your life and in your work? Mm-hmm. I think since I was working as a youth librarian directly previous to this job, and now I'm coming back into the archives world, and with children, a lot of your projects are a little bit more immediate, like a little bit more responsive, like there's some planning that has to happen, but it's a little bit more boots on the ground running around. Here, it's a lot of, we have to wait two years to decide on that. Or So there's a lot of, it can feel like projects are building mm. and building and building, and there's physical piles building and building and building. So what's helped me is at the end of the week trying to reduce it to one pile in my office. <laughs> like So when I walk in, I visually am not overwhelmed. Mm. So just having the space around me kind of reflect the energy I want to bring has <laughs> been very, very helpful. And yeah, being able to not feel overwhelmed by my space has been key. It's a good one. Well, thank you so much for sharing the archives and your work with us. It's my pleasure. I love talking about archives. <laughs> thanks to Becky Butler and the Archives and Special Collections at the UAA APU Consortium Library. I really enjoyed learning more about how those archives are preserving the histories and stories of Anchorage and Alaska. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. The Anchorage City Podcast is grateful for a grant from Resonate Global Mission and a partnership with Street Psalms, both of which contribute to making this podcast possible. And we're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you are hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and recommend us to your friends. 
You can support this podcast by selecting the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative at smile.amazon.com when you shop at Amazon so that when you make a purchase, Amazon donates to us. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hands, and hearts of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean the desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at Anchorage UTC. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner. Monica Lettner.